Your fear of not being smart enough is the same thing because there's no such thing as needing to be smart enough to speak. I think we have to know what part of us is being triggered by the world around us. The people who we see traumatized are the most sensitive people. You know, someone who's wise or someone who's curious. I am patient zero, always and forever. The problem is always me. They say your spouse could be your best teacher or like you marry your unfinished business. Anything out there that's getting my attention is coming back to something in here that's unresolved that needs to be worked out. Welcome to the In Search of More podcast. I am your host, Ellie Nash. Join me weekly on my quest for more. More from myself and more from this world. We'll see you on the other side. All right. Welcome, Ida. Thank you. I'm sitting here with Ida Schottenstein on the In Search of More podcast. Um, let me see where I start. So I feel like in some ways we're somewhat of a kindred spirit. I'll explain what I mean by that. We were both, we both had an intense fear of public speaking. If you were telling the truth. About yours, I was about mine. <laughs> Seems like you're a little nervous now, so yes, it's definitely true. Yes, that there's, uh, it's good. I get nervous too. I was telling you uh, just before that conversation I had with Gabor Monte at the beginning of it, I was, and I was excited to be because it's just cool to do stuff that still make you nervous. It's like right. a good sign of life. Right. I'm doing things that make me nervous. Right. So excitement's on the <laughs> other side of nervous, so it's coming from the same yeah place. I saw a sign once at a conference that said. Fear is excitement without breath. So keep breathing. So I guess I'm excited then. Yeah. Yeah. Nervous. Yeah. It's the same thing. Right. Someone can call it nervousness, but it's also a certain excitement. So what are you excited about? (laughs) I'm excited about the opportunity, this opportunity. Um, Excited to express gratitude uh, to you for um, kind of paving the path for me and setting me on it. Don't know that I'd be here today if it wasn't for your um, his belief and involvement. So I guess I never really had the opportunity to say thank you publicly. So here I get the opportunity. I'm excited yeah. about that. Sure. Yeah. Good venue. Good venue yep. for yep. that. Yep. yep. So I'll uh, I'll explain what uh, what Edith's talking about. What you're talking about. So as I've been public about, I had a terrible fear of public speaking. This is going back maybe to about. Um, I mean, all my life, but probably 2014 or so, 2015, I felt that I needed to speak. I needed to share my story. Reached out to Rosh Lowe. It's possible he reached out to me. He trained me for some talks, and over time, I kept in touch with him, and that kind of evolved into Rosh training many other people um, to speak publicly, including yourself. So for you, the first time you spoke was for your son's son Ari's bar mitzvah, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's about five years ago. What is that? Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly five years ago. Amazing. So can you uh, bring us uh, into that process? Do you remember the fears before? I'm sure you turned down many other speaking opportunities. He is your oldest. Yeah. But I'm sure you turned down many other speaking opportunities. And what changed? What changed there? Um, well, there was an opportunity before the bar mitzvah at a, a Shabbos table where um, we, we had these friends who would go around the table every Friday night, and everyone had to share something, either a thought or something that they would take upon themselves to do. And as they were going around the table, I would just conveniently disappear in the right time so I could leave right before my turn and come back after. And it was a big enough table where hopefully people wouldn't notice. And this happened several times until one day I thought, I don't know if this is good for my kids. You know, they're sitting at the table too. And so I looked at the bulletin, the shul bulletin that they hand out every week, and I found a little thought. 
and I shared it and I was shaking. Um, and I survived. The so, Shabbos table, 10 or 15 people. Yeah, probably just about, maybe a little more. Okay, let's say 20 people. But yeah, to me, that was like a public right. forum. Like I was, it was not, it almost wasn't different from speaking in front of an audience. That uh, honestly, smaller groups are harder than bigger groups. Yeah, yeah. So speaking in front of 500 or 1,000, it feels like just a sea of people. Speaking in front of 10 or 20, which yeah. know you is. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought of that. Like you're seeing the reactions of the people as you speak. Yeah. And I, I, I saw some looks of pity, like they <laughs> probably felt bad. And then I started to notice after um, I finally got that out of the way that other people were doing it too. So people were getting up and leaving <laughs> and I, I paid attention. So that was comforting. They knew I wasn't alone in that whole experience. So yeah, this is ridiculously yeah. common fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for reasons I didn't understand at the time, I thought that it was... I thought I was afraid because I wasn't smart enough, or I didn't have anything compelling enough to share with anyone, so why would I speak up? But then when I knew about your experience, I would imagine you didn't feel that way, like that you're not smart enough. So what's, what's the common denominator? What's going on that so many people are afraid? So I kept having to check myself. Like, it's not that I'm not smart enough. And then I saw this whole idea of if you know Aleph, teach Aleph. You know, someone who's wise is someone who's curious. Someone so, who's wise is someone who's curious. Yeah. Who's curious, who learns from everybody. So that excuse was out the window. Um, and But when yeah. you say smart enough, like, I mean, people talk all the time. Everyone talks. Like, where would that thought get in the head? Let's say there's someone who actually isn't smart. Right. Is there such a thing as not smart enough to talk? Maybe not smart enough to command other people's attention, right, at their expense. Like, I don't. Like you have better things to do. Why would you be listening to what I have to okay, say? Okay, so I think that's more common. Meaning you can say I'm I'm inconveniencing someone else. And yeah, then right. the hook that you hang the inconvenience on is I'm not that smart. But it's a form of, because I can see how someone can arrive at that very quickly as a child. That I don't want to speak up because I'm inconveniencing my parents or the adults in my life. Right. And specifically when, like when I was asked to speak, like at one of my kids' preschool events, that's when I really thought, why would they ask me? I don't have anything to share. So that's when I felt like, ask someone else. I'm sure there's someone else who has a much better, you know, much more skill, more skills, more expertise, something more than right. I do. Um, but I mean, I'd love to know from like, what was behind your fear? Because if it wasn't that, what was it? And then what's the common denominator for all of us? It's the most common fear. Um. What was behind my fear? I think it was a fear of emotions. So there was a sense that once, I always felt like my emotions were kind of right here, like I had this wellspring that was about to explode on everyone. But it could be in a lot of different ways. Like it could come in the form of anger, but that was really so. Maybe more tears or just heightened emotion. And I was afraid that if I got up and spoke, it can go there, like the emotion could spill out that was definitely um a big part of the fear and once i got more comfortable with expressing emotion in public then i got more comfortable speaking as well that was definitely a big part of it i don't think it was the only thing right yeah being yeah. seen is for sure part of it um, inconveniencing others um, appearing to be arrogant or egotistical but that's only certain kind of speeches not going around the Shabbos table. Right. So each one had its uh, yeah. 
Yeah. You know where yeah. I got over my fear? In 12-step meetings. Is that, they don't always go around the room. Some, they, actually, there was a portion in, in the meetings I went to where they did go around the room um, at the end of every meeting, and they said, just share something you're grateful for, which that you can almost get out the words before. I'm grateful for ice cream. You know, you can say it. Right, and just right. pass it on. But anytime I shared, there was these intense nerves. And uh, I had a sponsor who just said, like, like, every time you come to a meeting, like, your participation is not only through listening, it's through speaking. Let people get to know you. And I was so committed to getting sober that he could have told me anything. So if it meant speaking in front of a group, and obviously there's a safety in a small group, and sometimes it was four or five people, but you did have to, not you did have to speak, it would be awkward to speak for less than a couple minutes. Right. So it was a couple minutes of, of talking, and eventually doing that 50 or 100 times, that muscle got stretched. Like, I don't know if I ever would have gotten over the fear if not for 12 steps meetings, 12 step meetings. So doing it in a safe space over and over eventually led to you getting through. Yes. But yeah. Yeah. Right. And then from there, I went to, I, I made a commitment to myself that any opportunity I have to speak in public, I'm going to do so, even if it's only to say that I committed to myself that every opportunity I right. have, right, right. I'm going to speak in public, so all I have to say is that. Right. Thank you so much for listening. Right. Sometimes that's what I did at a Shabbos table, otherwise, and just kept exercising that muscle. Right. But the nerves never went, never went completely. I don't, I don't, nor do I want it to. One of the worst speeches I ever gave was it felt off, and I didn't get much positive feedback either. Um, was at a JCW event where I had just spoken a couple of days before. I came in a little bit more confident, zero nerves, and. I didn't connect. I didn't, I didn't feel I connected to the audience and I didn't get any feedback that I did either. So those right, nerves are, right. they're not the worst thing. Right. Like the thing that's preventing you from speaking is the very thing that will make you an effective speaker. It's like the self-doubt. Yes. Like the, the, not the self-doubt, but maybe the, uh, yeah, the self, for, for me it was the self-doubt. <clears throat> like harnessing the benefits of that instead of seeing it as like a, a weakness. Right. One of the first speeches I gave that was like in front of an audience and prepared and I was invited was at a lamplighter's dinner where I, the year before, year prior, Yochevet Seidoff put me on the spot and said, hey, would you like to get up and speak with two or three minutes notice? I said, no, I can never imagine doing, doing that. And over the course of that year, having gone to meetings and everything else and, um, you know, a few Shabbos tables where I said, I'm going to speak. Right. She invited me with like a couple months preparation. And then I prepared. And one of the ways I got around everything in my head was I spoke heavily about the fear. Right. Because so, that's, where, that's where we get tripped up, I think, is when that's what one of the first questions I asked you is about being nervous. Because if, you, if you're wondering about looking nervous, then you can lose the whole talk. Right. If you just talk about nervous, now it's there. There's nothing to Right. Right. You get it out of the way. We've slayed the dragon. Right. So do you, like, how much do you prepare before you're, before, before speaking? Meaning, because you don't, you want, you don't want to be so prepared. Right. Where you're not, you know. It really, it really depends. I don't do that much speaking, speaking anymore. Like, even if I'm invited to yeshiva, I'll speak for five minutes, say almost nothing, and then just Q&A. Right. Like, I find that to be a much, much more um, meaningful use of my time and those there is to have a Q&A about these topics and just create a forum for 
people to speak openly and comfortably. Right. I haven't done a like a speech speech. I don't remember the last one I I gave and prepared for. And in terms of these, uh, this, these are discussions. I don't prepare that much. Right. Right. So some more than others, but I remember I shared with you, I had a certain topic that I wanted to discuss, which was this. And um, that's all. And then we see where, where it goes. It's just a discussion. Right. Right. Now, in terms of um, the bar mitzvah, so you had noticed, I guess, okay, you got a reason why, right? You had this powerful fear. You had a reason why. You say, hey, my kids are noticing me. Right. I'm going to start speaking. So you did a few of those at a shop's table? Uh, yeah. I did probably three or four. And I was also, I eventually accepted the opportunity to speak at a, the preschool. Oh, you did that? I did that. Um, before Ari's Bar Mitzvah. So that was before Ari's Bar Mitzvah. Okay. Yeah. But after the Shabbos table. The I Shabbos table was my preparation for saying yes to that. Because I really wanted to. I felt like it was a safe space. Like the Meetings. the safe space aspect was very important to me. Um, so I, yeah, I did that. It was it didn't go very well because it was my first time, and the the nervousness just got me. I, the fight or flight for me is very could be very dangerous, um, especially having ADD where I get distracted naturally. That's my default. So you have both of those things, and like I and then I. I, I can blank very easily. So I, to every time I, I'm live or I get in, you know, into a conversation in front of a camera, I, I'm assuming that risk. Of, right, so when you say it didn't go very well, it sounds like it went very well. Um, I think I was so nervous that other people were a little bit uncomfortable seeing how nervous I was. <laughs> you know, was, yeah. I don't know if it was projection, I'm not sure. But, no, no, that's true. It does happen. Yeah, so, um, but... I, they all, I knew those people. I knew there were other moms at the preschool who knew that I hadn't done this before and they knew that I was nervous. I did share that. And many of them are as well. Um, yeah. And many of them, not many of them, one in particular said, like, I would never do this. So I give you a lot of credit for doing it. Like, I wouldn't even bother. So I felt like empowered by that. You know, I took this risk and I felt better after. Right. I'm just wondering in terms of the, re the repeating of the story. To yourself and others, when you say it didn't go very well, it sounds like it went very well because the purpose was to prepare you to be more comfortable. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. So it did go well, right? right. It definitely, <laughs> yeah, helped pave the path. Yes. Okay, and then from there to his. At this point in time, yeah. you're already committed. At this point in time, I, I need. I had to find my, my voice. I need to. I needed to find ex expression through words, because up until that point, I found expression in other ways. Such as? Some healthy, some unhealthy. So um, as a kid, I was the class clown. I got kicked out of school, I got kicked out of summer camp because I was just, I had no way to channel my energies. So, and then as I got older, it was through music, um, but I couldn't sit for a piano lesson. So I had to just, it was sort of like um, the Wild West channeling of my energies. Right. So uh, through music, I composed music, I wrote poetry. Um, so in that regard words did help but the words were very obscure it wasn't like you know with poetry there's no rules the stuff right. that didn't make sense to anyone but me kind of like a song you might not understand it it's just random words piled together and it sounds good so um it was that way and then i guess the unhealthy manifestation of that was um through projection of my own insecurities on other people so i would express myself or react to something that was a disproportionate reaction to the actual event. And I knew that was a form of, I know now, I didn't know then, but it was a form of, of expression that wasn't helping me. It was, 
a diversion of what I actually had to, to address. So yeah, that was, those were the different manifestations. And eventually um, my, I decided, I don't even remember how this happened, but I decided to, to go to the community college. I think I was just, I had nothing, go, I was selling stuff on eBay for fun because at the time we had Filene's Basement as a kind of family store. I was buying things on the sale rack and selling them just to pass the time um, when the kids were in preschool. Then I went to, um, uh, to Columbus State. I took a placement test just to see how poor a student I actually was. And I placed in uh, third grade math and English as a second language. I was from Montreal, but that wasn't a good enough excuse. And I decided that I would just take developmental courses to get me up to college level so at least I can just be on a level playing field. Um, you that was just third grade math? I placed third grade math. Wow. But school for me was um, completely pointless. It was like a square peg in a round hole. I just daydreamed all day in class for whatever reason. Um, and then I caught up and I just kept going. And I ended up like with a 4.0 GPA and, and then went to graduate school, same thing. So I kind of had to prove to myself, you know, I, you know, you could do this. Like you can do hard things, like don't sell yourself short. This was all unconscious, you know, beneath the surface. And, and Are so you that, still proving to yourself or is the fight over? Um, I feel like the struggle is always there. It's like you said, like we're always nervous. But we want to be nervous. I feel like if I didn't have the, like some root there, I don't know that I would continue doing what I do. But I don't, I don't, I can't really definitively answer that question because I, I've come a long way since then. Am I still insecure? Sometimes, yeah. Um, have I grown into myself and, and uh, am I working toward my potential? I'm on the path. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You see the light. Yeah. Yeah. It, when did it um, change for you that you went from every opportunity to speak was a, a major struggle or thought to, okay, I can do this. Maybe I'll be a little bit nervous, but right. it's not going to change what I do. Um, I'm still in the struggle phase. Like I don't, like this was very, it was overwhelming for me thinking about doing a, a live interview. Um, the more I do it, the more confident. But you knew, but you said yes right away. Yes. Right. Yes. So I'm saying, when did it go from that, from questioning whether I will, like right. Ari's bar mitzvah, for example, you thought a lot before. Right. Here you said, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm uncomfortable. Great. Right. But it's not going to change what I'm going to do. So I don't say yes to every one. I said yes because I knew that, so I, I trust your judgment because years ago when you first had that thought of, you know, maybe Ida is, could do this and that, whatever, whatever um, you did that helped me kind of get on this path, it's worked. I mean, it's, you know, it's been effective. So I trusted that if you were requesting that I come here, that, that I should say yes. Okay. So okay. it was more like this particular interview. Okay, I you wouldn't, felt comfortable. I, yeah, but any interview... I'm definitely more likely to say yes now than I was before. Okay, hopefully after this one you feel like... Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> more ready than before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you now know what that, what that is or was, that energy that kind of uh, bubbles up inside you that wants to be expressed verbally? That's what when I shared about the, the kindred spirit, that's, that's what I meant by it, is there's some people who went about this speaking thing, even if they had an intense fear, in the way of, okay, I have this fear, like I have a fear of heights, right? So after I went through some of the fear of speaking, I 
took a trip to Costa Rica and during it, I did everything I could heights related. I don't know, rappling and jumping off things and just, I'm still terrified of heights, but I was determined to do something about it. And now I'm like, okay, I did that. Like I'm not, I'm not going back to do that every week. And some people approach speaking in the same way where I have an intense fear. Great. I got up on stage. I spoke and I'm done. Right. And then others, and that's what I see in you and see in me is this constant, um, energy that needs to be expressed verbally. So I'm wondering if you've been able to put any, any words to that? Like, do you know, do you know what that is and what's, what's going on? Um, so when I had the opportunity to interview Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, mm -hmm. um, he said something that really stuck with me. Um, something to the effect of we're spiritual beings in a physical world and we are our, we're yearning to discover our purpose. That's how we are. By we, I don't know, you know if he meant every single person, but I certainly related to that feeling that he had. Um, and in order to find your purpose, you have to ask yourself the following question. Um, what's the place where what I want to do meets what needs to be done at that intersection? Um, and where what you want to do meets what needs to be done, that's where God wants us to be. So that, you know, maybe initially it was more of a selfish need, like to, you know, be more confident, this and that. I think it, I think it progressed to this place where the, I was starting to see the why, like through the feedback. Um, after I did several talks where I spoke to groups or individually to people, um, it's, where I need, it's where I needed to be. And uh, it started, it, I grew up around people who struggled um, with mental health, people that I, you know, lived amongst, and I, I saw, you know, what that did to them. And um, I knew no one talks about it, and I was comfortable enough to talk about it, you know, where people hopefully can find comfort in my own experience. So you found through, I just want to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying, that through verbal expression, you're able to find a purpose, which is speaking about mental health related issues. Uh, yeah. And, and even beyond mental health, just anything that can help a person feel less alone in their experience. Cause I, I really do believe that at the core, um, we're, most of us are just yearning for connection to feel less alone, to feel understood. It's all, you know, if you're digging, digging, that's what we need. So right. some people call it a godliness, spirituality, like just a connection to something greater. Well, right. That other side of it is shame. And that's a lot of what I've, a lot of what I've spoken about for years is the corrosive nature of shame and how it just eats away at everything. And shame does that. Shame disconnects us from the, from the people around us. So the reverse of that is that, uh, that connection for sure. How is it? I, I know you run multi-role woman, the, um, the, your podcast from the inside out. Can you, can you give some sense of like areas of focus, right? From the outside, I don't know what, what's more, what's less, and what you're um, driving towards with each of them. Right. So there's very little focus, um, meaning that I guess if, you're, if we're talking like turning struggles into strengths, uh, my struggle was that I 
couldn't focus on one task and follow through um, to the end until I finished college. That was the first time I had felt that feeling of, wow, I, I finished what I started. Um, up until then, even if making dinner, I would cook dinners, but then like the kitchen would be a complete wreck. And I, you know, so there was like a certain lack of follow through. And, um, and there was, I also had many kind of unchanneled energies, like skills, talents, whatever you want to call it. Um, I wanted to put out music. I wanted to, believe it or not, be a hip hop dancer when I was a teenager. I had all these different um, dreams and goals that I couldn't, it felt like you're at a, like a busy intersection and nobody's directing traffic. So there's like all these things going on. And so I channeled it into multi-role woman, meaning I found a way to at least organize things a little bit, kind of like found a, a traffic person, okay, gotcha. you know, to direct the traffic, but there's still a bunch of things happening. Um, my main goal is to just share whatever I can to help make the world an easier place to live in. Got it. Is, so. there, is there a central message, a central theme to, to what you speak about? Can you... Like Raj had his uh, billboard exercise. Right. Do you have that? Um, I guess two things. The first is, is uh, there's a book called The Obstacle is the Way. Mm -hmm. right. um, or like you find your purpose on the path you take to avoid it, something like that. So I don't know if this is like a mission statement, but certainly like don't discount your struggles, use them. Um, to harness them to you know find your purpose i guess is more what i learned rather than more a billboard right. headline but i i think we make a big mistake when we like the torah misenai you know that i don't know what the english term for it is but like we take one person's teachings or advice and just ascribe to that fully without recognizing that we're very unique and there's no one like us and there's no precedent for our experience that we can look to to know how to live our lives. So we're really like, we're doing this all in real time and we're unique and we have to be aware of like our way. There's a great story. I don't know if you want, there's a, a, a documentary about one of the best sushi chefs in the world. I haven't seen In it. Japan, forget what it's called, but he's like one of the, his rest, you can't get a reservation for years out. So he's just sharing his story. And he said he was asked to speak for a group of students and he, stood in front of this massive bunch of students and he was trying to figure out what he should say about success. Should I say work hard, do well in school? I can't say that because he said, I can't say that because I didn't do well in school. I didn't work hard. I was right. a, a bit of a rebel. Should I say, don't follow the rules, you know, do your thing. I can't say that either because I don't want to get anyone in trouble for not following the rules. So there's really nothing I could say that would accurately reflect, you know, my experiences and then like passing it on, passing it on to them. So he never, he said he wouldn't share what he ended up sharing with these kids, which is interesting, kind of leads okay. it to the imagination. <laughs> but I think the point is, you know, find your way and don't be afraid um, of the road less traveled of, you know, how you get there. So leaning into that struggle. I, yeah. Somewhat. Yeah. Yeah. I think no, that was a bit of a ramble, but. I'm just, I guess, formulating it right. as I'm saying it. But That's the purpose of this. It's a discussion, yeah. not a speech. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned feedback that you receive um, from people. Is there some that's more meaningful than others? Is there one that 
comes to mind? Um, I think it's less what was said, more who it was from. Mm -hmm. I'm very careful about who I listen to. Um, so feedback from, you know, from you, from Rosh, um, from my family, from people I respect. And, uh, I mean, I've read like tons of self-help books and I always wanted to, I always Googled the person, the author of the book, like as I was reading it, like I was curious to know, like, who's the person behind the teaching? Oh, interesting. And I always wanted to see like their, their bio. If this is someone who I would want to emulate, you know, someone whose values I respect, then I'm really reading it and I'm taking notes and absorbing it. If it's someone who maybe I don't connect to or don't respect, someone who's doesn't walk the walk, the book, I'll read it if it's interesting, but it doesn't really hold. You're not taking notes. Right. That's fascinating. I, I've never done that. I've read so many books, I don't even know the author. Right. Right. Never, it never bothered me to. Uh, Which is also good sense. because you, no, you just take what works for you. It's, I, I get that. Yeah. yeah. Both make sense. Right. There's, there's value Different, both. yeah. I think yeah. Maimonides says, follow the message, not the medium. Like, just look at the message for what it is, not who it came from. Because sometimes we can start ascribing special powers to people. But on the other hand, sometimes you listen to someone who, who doesn't have what you want. So Right. Why are right. You? Right. And yeah. on the other side of that, there's, you know, examine the morals and ethics of the people that you look to for life advice. So there's like, I guess, both those ways of doing things. But uh, I could see how both are valuable in their own way. So how do you combine the idea of a role model, right, which we all agree is somewhat important, with the idea of um, every person is unique on their journey and has... Uh, there's no one exactly, there's no one to follow exactly because we're all so unique. Right. So how do you? Right. Um, so there's, first of all, it's easier to filter out people that you don't respect, let's just say, right? People like who are your core people? Um, there's a great exercise that I did when I was coaching um, where I asked people to name. When you were coaching others. When I was coaching others, yeah. Okay. At a certain point I was doing individual coaching and I said, just name seven people who you admire and respect. It could be any seven. They could be dead, alive, you know, a, a character from a movie, mm -hmm. fictional character. And they wrote those names down and they would, they would list the things about those people that they admire and respect. Three or four things per, for each person. Mm -hmm. And then they would find like common denominators. Like what, is, what keeps showing up among those people? And if there's something showing up, let's say five, six, seven times, then that's sort of a... Indicator. Yeah. So you have both. So you're making it unique to you because um, you need role models, but you also want to find your path. It's sort of like a... Right. So the purpose know. of what you're explaining there is I'm not necessarily following one, but I'm taking enough from seven people that I'm able to... Right, right. Right. It's almost Learn like a, a buffet, like, you know, choosing what works for me and, and, uh, and hopefully that combination of things will enable me to live, to become a better person, to grow and not, you know, fall back. So I have this theory. I shared it with Rudy Rachman. I'll share it with you. Um, maybe you heard that episode because Rudy, surprisingly, um, had a fear of public speaking as well. Doesn't look like it. He also claims to be an introvert. I do as well. I'm pretty sure you do as well. Mm -hmm. So does Oprah, by but, the way. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, not surprising. You never know. That you mentioned. Yeah. 
Um, so I, sh I shared it with him and what I, what I'd say, because one of the um, fears I connected to about speaking was the fear of inconveniencing others, which maybe I was projecting, but it sounded to me like your fear of not being smart enough is the same thing because there's no such thing as needing to be smart enough to speak. The reason why I um, pulled that apart is because I felt like if, let's say there's someone who's actually not that smart. Right. Listening and they know they've documented it. They have a low IQ or whatever else. They've figured it out. They measured themselves in third grade math and they're still in third grade math even after 20 years of right. trying. Right. They still have a right to speak. They have a right. But should they be given a platform? Like It depends for what. Right. But right. what's a platform? Going around a meal at a... First of all, everyone has a platform now, so no one has to Which listen. Which became a problem in a way. Like you have people who but are... no one has to listen. Right, right. No one has to listen. Right, that's true. So we're doing this, no one's forced to listen. Right. Right, not even my wife. No one's forced to listen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but someone who's not... Let's... I mean, you gave the example of being afraid of sharing a personal anecdote at a, at a Shabbos table and being afraid of that. I'm sure there were many other examples where you were uncomfortable speaking, even if it was... To introduce someone. Okay, read this introduction of someone else. Right. You still would have felt that way. I think, I imagine so, right? I'm not, that would yeah, be yeah, my yeah, feeling, yeah, so I'm assuming. Yeah. And it really wasn't about that. So one of the things that I found in myself was this fear that I'm inconveniencing other people when, I, when I'm speaking. That's why I, it's one of the reasons I, I won't. I think, how would a child come to that place? What I share with Rudy is that Obviously, no one comes to the world with the fear of public speaking. That's impossible because, right. you know, two hours old and you're hungry. And right. <laughs> if, you're, if you're not willing to be public yeah. about it, they may not know right. and they may not give you the bottle you need. So obviously, it's not there. Somewhere it gets um, hit someone. And obviously, there's two ways this can happen. It's like anything else. There's trauma and sensitivity and kind of that balance of traumatic experience and sensitivity is someone's experience. Right, someone more sensitive with less traumatic experience will have just as much trauma as someone less sensitive with a very traumatic experience. Right, right, right. So, but by and large, we find that the people who we see traumatized are the most sensitive people. Right, meaning it's, right. yes, there's very serious trauma, but by and large, we find a correlation between highly sensitive people who are the ones presenting trauma that either are in addiction recovery or many of the other manifestations of trauma. So my thought process was the same thing with public speaking, is that you have a child who is very sensitive. One of the reasons they were sensitive could be because, especially sensitive to their verbal expression, and one of it could be because they were thoughtful. So their words didn't come like rolled off their tongue, right? If someone walks into your home or my home, they're more likely to get into a conversation with my wife or your husband than right. me or you. Right. Right. But we're the ones who are doing this. Right. Right. So what's connection, right? Same thing with, um, I don't know if it's the case with others, but for example, Rudy called himself an introvert, right? What did, what did he mean by that? That if you, I mean, he actually said it, is that if he's sitting around a table, he's not the one most likely to engage with others. And I think one of the things that get people to that place of, um, I'm not going to speak, is that their words come from, it's thoughtful expression. So the words come from kind of deep inside. So I, I remember experiencing that a couple of times was I thought about something I wanted to say and then saying it and then it not being received. That rejection feels like profound rejection. It could be because 
there was something else on right an adult figure's mind at that point but i'm talking this i'm talking about this experience as a child it could be it could be that there was someone something else on their mind but i experienced that as profound rejection if i didn't think that much before i spoke then right it might not have right. meant as much right 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 that's all might have been the the next thought i i likely wouldn't have inter- internalized that ex- expression i saw a quote the other day it said 50% of people have something to say and don't say it and the other 50% have nothing to say and keep repeating it <laughs> So I know where I was. I don't know where I am now. We'll let the audience decide. But the that period of time, right, where someone is sitting there with something to say and can't say it, oftentimes that I found is like that it comes from like somewhere incredibly deep. Let me ask yeah. you this. You wrote a, a couple of songs, right? Were those hard to share? By share, do you mean like put them out once mm-hmm. they were recorded? Um there was a certain there was a certain amount of vulnerability for sure to it. That was that more than getting up and giving a speech. Different. Different, yeah, because it wasn't like a, a direct interaction with with the listener. Right. So maybe if I was like playing it for someone who was sitting next to me and watching the reaction, I'd be maybe similar reaction. Right. I get my my hypothesis that I'm playing with is that being that a song will come from like you're singing through it's coming from somewhere. Hopefully. Right. Right. <laughs> right. It's kind right. of somewhere deep inside. Then putting that out into the world, it's like, hey, if this isn't received well, that's like a... Yeah, actually, now that you mention it, the feedback I got from some people, um, and that's what made me much more careful about who I, you know, whose feedback I absorb. But one song is, I wrote it after I did a, a, a crisis intervention course, suicide prevention, things like that. And I discovered something that I was surprised by that um, the people with the highest rate of suicide are Caucasian males between the ages of uh, 18 and 30. And I thought that's so interesting in a world where they're like, you know, perceived to be like the privileged the class. Privileged class it, it almost didn't make sense. Um, and so I just started to like think a lot about it. What's going on in their minds? And like I connected to that experience. And so that I went very deep for that song. And um, somebody said something to me like, oh, are you suicidal? Something like that. Is that coming from you? I didn't know what to answer. Like, I was just shell-shocked. And that was like a vulnerable moment. Like, oh, am I, is this TMI? Am I exposing too much by writing a song about suicide? Um, So that was, yeah, a hard, a tough moment. Like you felt it? I felt it, yeah. It hurt. Felt like misunderstood. Yeah, yeah. Like rejected in a way, like. Like, oh, work through your stuff before, like, before, okay, I, I was I hearing, I mean, I I'm sure it. they didn't mean harm in saying what they said, but I definitely, yeah. I got it. Yeah. Okay, so where to from here? Do you have a, um, with all of these talents, energies, channeling, cross guards, what do you call them, safety guards? Or um, um, crossing like cops? A, yeah, intersect, a four-way okay. intersection with no one. With someone now directing like giving direction. Like I have a CEO in my brain now. <laughs> so with all that, do you have a place where this is, is going? Um, I have a direction. And I have values behind the direction, uh, values that guide me, but I don't have a specific goal. I have a vision, like for an ideal life, let's say. Um, I know from 
Tony Robbins, he says, we underestimate what we can do. Uh, we overestimate what we could do in a year. We underestimate what we could do in a decade. Right. So I know to have like patience and trust that the, it'll, this will lead me to where I'm supposed to be. And I do feel like I'm headed in the right direction. Do you, there's, um, a, there's a, the journey, you know, kind of goes through a process, right? I think everyone goes through a certain process. So at first it feels, um, kind of somewhat internal mm -hmm. where there's this, um, it's not exactly linear, but at first it feels somewhat internal where there's something I'm looking for, something I'm finding and something I'm trying to figure out. And then when I do, then there's this, oh, there's this external quality to it where it's okay. Let me share this. Let me give back. Let me, um, you know, let me, uh, express this. It's more externally focused, even though there's, like I said, it's not exactly linear, but, and we can be going on through two different of those at the same time in our life. So for example, from a financial aspect, we could be at a place where we figure we found something and we're ready to give back, but from a mental health aspect, we don't feel um, that way, but focused on where you are. If you connect to this internal versus external, do you feel like you're still more in the internal part of the process or more, um, or coming towards the external? It's a really, it's a good question. Uh, I think it's, it's still a tug of war. I don't, um, I, I would have to understand better what external means. Like I'll give you this, an analogy. Yeah. So in your own story earlier, you said that, um, when everyone was going around the Shabbos table, you left, right? What happened when you finally spoke? you notice that other people were leaving too. Right. Right. But you didn't notice that before. Right. Because you were caught in internally. Myself. Right. Right. And then at some point in time, you say, hey, I figured this out. I'm going to go and speak. So now you've overcome the internal challenge. I no longer have to hide when, the, uh, when we're going around the table. Right. And being that you have, now you can focus externally and say, oh, my goodness, here's these four or five people that are going through the same experience. Let me share with them what I found. That's what it means if I know Aleph teach Aleph. Right. Like I, oh, this struggle? Like yeah. I yeah, know yeah. how to pass Super Mario level one. Let me tell you how to do it. That's all. So funny you're saying that. That's I was all. thinking about Super Mario earlier, like the levels. When you're stuck in the first level, that's all you know. But then when you Correct. get to the next level, it's like a different consciousness almost. I don't know that. Right. On that problem. Yeah. On yeah. that problem. Each one is, yeah. Yeah. is different. Right. Right. Like, um. Yeah, with like my weight and diet and stuff like that, I'm still Super Mario level one. So <laughs> like anyone can something. It's something that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't subject quite, to interpretation. But yeah. You can compare it to others, but as right. far as me making progress in my right. own in goals, own Got it. I have not right. not on my own mind, it's in my own body. I have not figured it out. So okay, granted I haven't hit three hundred pounds, but the discomfort that I have with where it's at, I have not figured out how to get past um a couple weeks on it. So okay, I'm good. saying I'm not no one's here pretending that, oh, we're at level one, someone has level two, level 10. No, there's different parts of the journey. And like I said, someone could be financially in a certain place and mental health in a different place and physical health um, in, a, in another place. So there's no um, hierarchy going on here. It's just, hey, I know this trap. Right. I, I know this idea of running away from the table before the mic comes to me. I figured that out. And then I go externally. Right. And I notice others with the same struggle. Right. So, but that's in the micro. In the macro, there's also a sense like 
okay, I've turned the corner on this and I'm focused externally. So did that analogy help in terms yeah, of? Yeah, yeah. So it's, so if I, would, if I was putting a number on it, I would say 70, 30 external. Like I'm definitely more externally focused now. Um, yeah. But, it's, but you still feel that there's stuff internally that you want to. I think there's always going to be. I think um, if I'm a seeker, I'm always internally focused on some level to, because I'm evolving as a human. Like I don't, I don't feel that I've reached my own, in, I guess, internal potential, if that makes any sense. But um, I, I'm now I'm noticing what the world needs more so than like my own experience and how okay. I'm gonna, you know. So okay, so what is that? What is it? What is it that the world needs? In your yeah, um, the world needs to be more connected and more understanding of our differences. I'm recognizing that we're all just projecting on each other. And if we can just go down a layer that, um, down a layer, meaning internally like, or down a layer with other people, like understand what's beneath them. I think we have to know what part of us is being triggered by the world around us. So there's a lot of hate. There's like the suicide rates gone up and there's just, it's so much, there's chaos everywhere and a lot of drama that's unnecessary. Um, I think people don't realize two things. First of all, that they're projecting. And second of all, that it's in their best benefits. It's in, it's in their benefit to, to get on it because everyone's happier. Like, do you want to be angry and, and bitter, angry at someone? Like, why would you want that? Right, meaning you're, you're saying go, go in. Go in, yeah. Go in. Those like, things that are triggering you, it's... They're not going to be resolved when you outwardly fix if you're not internal yeah. also it's like it's like resentment is uh, taking a, a pill and hoping the other person gets hurt right. you're taking the pill and <laughs> but why are you doing it you're getting hurt so i think right. that's the that's right. what needs to be fixed and changed so saying i love is some people would rather cover the world in leather than put on a pair of shoes yeah <laughs> yeah exactly okay so that's that's where you see the world needs help. And you had mentioned Jonathan Sachs, probably Jonathan Sachs, um, talking about the intersection between what the world needs and what you like to do. Yeah. So what you like to do as far in relation to what the world needs, what is that? Um, so I this if it was just me making the decision without talking to people that I respected, I'd probably just be coaching one-on-one -on -one, um, because then I'd feel like I'm making an impact one person at a time. Um, but I've been told by people that I respect, like if you ha if you can have a bigger platform and share your message globally, it's it would be insane to not do it. Meaning I when, when I started the podcast, it was just more little conversations between me and my podcast partner, who's a friend. Right. Um, I wasn't intending to like bring on these big people. It was just it was like an evolving project for you know, to share what we know with other people. Who are but, some of your favorite guests you've had on the? Um, my mom <laughs> was my <laughs> I favorite. I listened to that one, yeah. Yeah, because she, she, she's, I mean, I get my personality kind of from her. Like, you know, she's an introvert. She doesn't like to share. My father's more kind of, you know, of a, he's, he's the. More outgoing. Yeah, more outgoing, yeah. Um, and Rabbi Sachs. I guess Rabbi Sachs got the most feedback. Terms of like impact, right? 
Um, There's several. I don't know that I have like, each one was so different. But I would say my mom was my favorite. Maybe because I was most comfortable in that conversation. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> okay, so you. I don't want to lose the, the point where we started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had mentioned that if you were listening to yourself, you would do one-on-one coaching. Mm-hmm. If you were doing um, a podcast, if you were, but you people you respect have said, "Hey, if you have the ability to have an impact, why not?" Right, including Rabbi Sachs, who said, "You know, where what you want to do meets what needs to be done." Based on the the podcast growth, it's it was clearly what needed to be done. So that's where I was and am to an extent. Right, a podcast can totally be used for one-on-one coaching. There are podcasts like that. Right, that's true. Yeah, they do one-on-one coaching. Yeah. So I'm coachable. Coach me. <laughs> <laughs> there's, yeah, there's actually one. Christine Hassler has a podcast. I don't know if you know who she is. Not familiar. So um, I did a webinar with her and her husband oh yeah yeah um yeah like towards the beginning I of the pandemic that. so she has a podcast i forget escape the name is escaping me <laughs> i need someone to look that up but i saw your your i saw that webinar that's right. how i know who she but is but that's where she actually coaches people live uh, on air it's right. much different than coaching it's like Lori Gottlieb does that too she's like the therapist in therapy she wrote a book called maybe you should talk to someone um so she did. And Esther Perel, I think, also does that with couples. Live coaching? Yeah. Uh, n- not live. No, it's actually, so it's a podcast where she, um, she does therapy on couples, couples therapy. But she records them. That's she what records I mean. them, yeah. Right, she yeah. records them yeah. and puts them out there. Yeah. Right. I'm saying maybe there's a way to, uh, yeah. to, to do everything. True. Uh, you had said earlier t- um, in terms of leaning into your struggles. So I kind of have two questions and obviously... Um, I'll ask it, we'll go where you go, and then in terms of parts of the conversation you want to cut out if you choose to, okay. we can totally do that, including the fact that I said that we cut out anything. Okay. That could be cut out too, or not, whichever you want. Okay. Um, it's been a topic of conversation on, uh, for me over the last, I don't know, let's say month or two around um, plant medicines. Earlier today, I spoke with Rabbi Harry, who is very vocal about um, plant medicines and obviously understanding all the legal stuff around there and recommend to everyone that they do it um, in, the, in the appropriate way. Do you have thoughts on it? Do you have opinions on it? Do you, do you um, say I, on the topic? Yeah, I have thoughts and opinions that, um, and I just want to, disclaimer, I'm not very, edu- I'm not as educated. Uh, I'm not, edu- I don't feel educated enough to make any, you know, statements on it, but personal experience, personal experience. So, so the Rebbe, the Lubavitch Rebbe is someone who, if I'm dealing with a dilemma, I look to his teachings for guidance on whatever issue is his issue of the moment. So I was very curious to know what his thoughts were on it. And it was interesting. He, I found a letter that he'd written to someone about LSD. So, you know, I'm, not, not... I'm familiar with the letter, yeah. Yeah, so it was interesting because he seemed to imply that it's if something is pikuach nefesh, which is essentially like you're helping save a life, the medium doesn't matter. You're doing it because you are trying to preserve life, which is holy and sacred and it's important. It's a priority. 
over anything, even keeping Shabbos for people who are right. super strict about that. So that was comforting to me. And then my intention became, or I should say, my goal became to really understand the intention behind my desire for healing through that medium. And I knew that it was mental health for me. I wasn't doing it recreationally. I was doing it for fun. So I did, I didn't do the mother of all, right. you know, I didn't do the ayahuasca, but I did like a, you know, a, a mild version of that. And I did see the appeal. Appeal. Absolutely. The yeah. healing. Yeah. It certainly, yeah. So it's interesting about that letter. I've seen the letter um, and it seems to be like a, uh, like a Mona Lisa kind of meaning it's like whatever, like you look at it from different directions and people come to different conclusion. I've some people show me this letter. Look, you see the rubber said, you can't do this. And I said, look, you see the rubber said for healing. It's okay. Interesting. So, so where's the, you can't do this. Like how, what's the argument? It wasn't an optimistic letter. Like, Oh yes, for sure. There's something wonderful. It was kind of, um, this thing, if it had any purpose, you know, would be for physical health. Um, but even then maybe it may, be, may not be necessary and you can read it as, I, I know some person who read that as physical health, but not mental health. I'm like, that's right. right. That's, okay. that's a real stretch for me. Right. So, right. um, right. What I'm saying is the, the letter itself, I, I've seen different people interpret it different ways. So I'm not sure that the letter itself will be enough to just anyone. Right. Someone may find what they're looking for right. in that. Right. in that particular letter. The other part of it is specific to LSD. Um, I don't know that many practitioners who are using this medicinally. Right. I mean, the primary purpose, I'm sure it exists and some people do, but I, as far as I know, the primary use of that specific substance, and each one is very different, the primary use of that specific substance is more in the recreational realm or right. mystical, spiritual I don't know if there are that many therapists, and it could be because of the length of time, not because of the chemical. Just that it's a very long experience, so a therapist to charge someone for 12 hours may just right. not work that well. So they'll use it, so they'll use, it, they'll use something like uh, mushrooms, which have a, a shorter effect, or MDMA, which has even a shorter effect than that. So it could be because of the, the time period. That's why it's not used um, medicinally that much. But I don't, maybe, maybe there's something to the fact that it was written about that specific substance. That's all I'm saying. Right. Right. So regardless, um, I think everyone, I mean, with or without a rebel letter, everyone understands that pikoach nefesh, like pushes everything. Right. And I asked a rabbi this question, you know, like, what does it mean? Pikoach nefesh? Does someone literally have to be at verge of death? And he said, no, you know, poverty is a form of death. Depression is a form of death. All of these things are in that spectrum. We don't have to say that someone has to literally be the difference between living and dying in order to say it's pikuach nefesh. If someone's right. life has been sucked out of them because they have uh, have an unhealed trauma as, as a child, that too is pikuach nefesh, even though we don't have any attempted suicide or contemplated suicide. It's very true. Any of those things. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. So are you comfortable sharing any aspect of um, that experience that enabled a healing that you weren't able to access despite putting the work in, right? There's been no shortage of work on your part to heal right. what needs to be healed. Right. So um, have you heard of uh, the emotion code? There's I have like, heard of it. Yeah. Yes. So 
to me, that's sort of, there's sort of a parallel of unblocking you through the chakras or however it's done in ways that you maybe previously weren't able to. So w specifically with, with uh, plant medicine, it, 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 once you see something, you can't unsee it. And so what you're, it kind of opens up your mind to this. I mean, you know, but it's, yeah. uh, you know, this new way of seeing things it's like a perspective shift that it enabled me to go to a place that I wasn't able to go to through um, traditional therapy and medication. Um, and I wasn't dealing with major mental health issues and I was doing a ton of work and I even became a therapist. So do I think it's for everyone? No, but I, I think there's a preparation. Um, I also believe that there's no magic pill, but it's if that's one piece of the puzzle of your healing journey, then I, I, support, I support that. Um, right. But if I think someone is just curious and they want to try it, I've met people who did it uh, like many times, which so maybe some people need to do it more often than others. But um, I, I, that part I don't really understand, like how much more a person needs to uh, get to where they need to be um, after several times doing it. So again, I'm not educated enough to, to know or to fully understand, but that's sort of my thinking on that. Like I think once, twice, three times, um, and then that should hopefully set you on the path. But this is my own, right to an extent, ignorant. Right. Yeah. The question is what the path is. Right. Right. So there's a there's a part of it that, like you said, is always evolving. Right. Uh, but there is too frequent. There's definitely too frequent. So the uh, from my experience and speaking to many people who've gone through it, there's this combination of it's called the journey, which is the experience while under the um, medicine, psychedelic, mind altering substance, while in that space, and then the learnings or they call the integration right. period from this. And some people strip the integration from the journey. And as a result, they keep going back. But what I found with certain medicines, um, let's say ayahuasca, um, probably psilocybin would be in the same category, is that they're, they're somewhat self-correcting. So if someone overuses, at a point they will have that journey which explains to them that they are overusing in a way that a human being could never <laughs> explain to them that they are right. that they're overusing. I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm just saying that I've seen that. I've seen people who I felt were overusing mm -hmm. and then they they found out because when you say perspective shift, what perspective shift is, like one way of saying it is I'm seeing more truth. There's there's a lot of this I don't know, that rock has many different truths depending on which angle we're looking at right. and perspectives. The more perspectives I get of that rock, the more truth I see right. of that rock. So I want to say complete truth, but one of the things it does, and it's done for me, I can give a silly example. Um, I would say silly, a benign example of that with, with my wife or one of the first experiences that I had on it. It just showed me how so many of the disagreements we have, I wasn't seeing her perspective at all. So it's, Silly, but I was never very comfortable spending money on myself. I was comfortable giving. I was comfortable spending money on myself. That bothered my wife. So she encouraged me, hey, you know, like, 
when you're flying, you're giving money to people, fly, fly business class, fly first class, take care of yourself, stay in nice hotels. Don't, don't treat yourself like that. It's a sign of disrespect to be willing to give away so much money and not, um, and not, not, not do it for myself. Right, right. It's like, right. why would you do that? Right. So I shut her out saying, okay, you just like nice stuff <laughs> and want nice things. So you're telling me fly, you know, fly in this way. And this kind of was at a standstill, mm-hmm. right? She had her opinion and I had mine. And suddenly, like one of the first experiences I had, I was brought to um, a trip she took to California without me. And she slept on her sister's couch. And the truth of that was like very Dread. real in front of me. And I was right. like, no, she wasn't saying that when we travel together, then we should stay in nice hotels because she was saying that when I was there, when she wasn't alone, she was very comfortable right. sleeping on a couch. Right. It was right. a specific instruction to me, but I'd shut it down because of my own whatever stories or stuff. I just wanted to be resistant on this point. And suddenly I had a perspective shift, literally a perspective shift. And this wasn't, it seems so obvious. We're all stuck in a million ways on so many of these things in our life. And this was one that was causing a minor amount of pressure. Like I said, it's benign, but it does. Ex- I think it does explain the kind of shifts. For me and my wife, it was a big deal. Right. <laughs> the right. fact that, oh, I see where she's coming from in this regard. And then it, it did allow for some, some important healing to happen because if my wife was right, then there was a disrespect that was going on. And what was that about? Right. And what was that discomfort? Right. And then now I had to, the perspective shift wasn't just a resolution of our Different. conflict. It was also a invitation, more than an invitation, a, a pull. Like I had to. Now I had to look at what, what, what was she, what was she seeing? And wh- where was that coming from? And that's opened up. Um, that would be a, I'm happy to talk about almost everything, but that would be a journey in its own talking about what I realized from that. But just, I, th- I think I shared enough in terms of the possibility that comes about from a, a perspective shift. Um, was it specifically these- through the, um, the, the psychedelic journey that opened up your, your, your perspective and your mind, or was it something else? Are you saying that that's- It came, it, that came, came clear to that? me on a journey. Interesting. Right, the, the tension around this point came up. I'm seeing her perspective, I'm seeing mine, and boom, there I am, and I'm seeing her, like in my mind, I'm seeing her sleeping on the couch and then my whole story suddenly evaporated right 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 the the story i was telling myself where she wants nice stuff and that's why she's telling me to yeah um just a story it was just a story it wasn't true and she traveled alone she was very comfortable sleeping on her sister's couch it was my story right right and then what (laughs) and then yeah then what is true what is true was her perspective right that i that there was some there was some disrespect i was showing myself and what was that about and where was that discomfort? And what were the fears there? And what were the beliefs about myself? What were the beliefs about the world? And all of this other thing that it uncovers. Yeah. That yeah. Um, it allows for. Yeah. That's, so. the, that's the ultimate goal is to to own our our part. That's what you were saying earlier, right? It's, yeah. We're triggered by someone else and it's so easy to focus outward. Right. And specifically with, with couples, um, forget where I read this, but he, he was saying, uh, he's a couples therapist. He said that, we assume that in a couple's relationship, it's there's a hundred percent, and we're splitting that up. It's like, oh, well, you're eighty percent responsible, and I'm twenty percent responsible for this problem. When in reality, we each have a hundred, so it's two hundred percent. And if we're owning our hundred percent, and they're owning their hundred percent, then that's really the goal. Things get but we're not out. seeing things that way. We're in like a 
divided sort of like pizza pie, you know, sort right. of some game world. Whatever. And what I would say is, even though we've taken it and we've had this perspective shift and have this experience, as I sit with you now, I'm stuck in one with my wife right now and I can't see it. Right. Me, meaning I, right. But, but if you're saying you can't see it. No, then, meaning there's there's a point of tension okay. where I'm not feeling the 100%, meaning as Got you're it. saying, I'm not feeling the 100%. Okay. okay. So I can know it's true intellectually, but I'm fairly certain that were I to enter a state um, right. and this um, tension would clarify itself, I would see additional perspectives that would point it back to me. One of the things I like to say is that we are patient zero, always and forever. We are always. I am. I shouldn't even say we are because then I'm, I'm making it too big. I am patient zero, always and forever. The problem is always me, and the, the solution is always me, and it's always coming back to something. Anything out there that's getting my attention is coming back to something in here that's unresolved that needs to be worked out. Right. Always and forever. Right. I am patient zero. Right. Um, do you think it's ironic that uh, we, we sit there with microphones um, I, I kind of alluded to this earlier that we sit there with microphones and our respective spouses don't when they're very comfortable speaking. Do you see, think there's something there? Um, so it isn't my experience because um, my spouse does have a microphone too. Um, we were, uh, we spent the weekend in Palm Beach, West Palm Beach, and um, they were asking one of us to speak. I think he was pointing more to me as the podcast, you know, right. wife. And I was adamantly against it, not because I was scared. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't like to speak on the spot. I do need to have time to prepare mentally. Um, that was one of the reasons, but mainly he is really good at that. And it's interesting how, you know. What some, is that? At uh, expression, speaking publicly, stating a point with impact and uh, really, you know, bringing in the crowd. Like, he's really good at that, which was interesting that I took on that role when I already had, you know, they say your spouse could be your best teacher or like you marry your unfinished business. Mm -hmm. So he reflected all the things that I wasn't and maybe desired in a way, his ability to express very easily. Um, it's interesting what you said earlier about the confidence factor, like people who are very confident speaking, maybe there's not as much thoughtfulness, which could be true. Um, but he manages to kind of have both, like he has the thoughtfulness and the ability to speak. So yeah, I mean, he does, we both do it just in very different ways. Right. It's true. I, I what I meant is that I mean, Freddie also is quite talkative right? and <laughs> And smart and, right, and she'll get she'll get more and more comfortable speaking. I don't I don't question that. It's more of the constant need for expression. That's what I mean. That right. there's some sense that like this is here often. There's so much that needs to get out. Right. That's what, and the more I get out, the more it seems like I get filled with it needs to come out. Right. Right. That's it. Seems like a never ending. That's what I. Uh, right. Right. That's what I meant. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I would kind of turn the question back to you and get your thoughts on it. What do you think it is? How would you articulate the question so I can hear it and answer it? Like, is it ironic that the spouse who it comes more naturally to is not the one 
doing it as much as the one who's, um, you know, not right. As it's comfortable not only doing spouse; it. it's people. Or yeah. Um. No, I think it is. I think they're connected. I think they're definitely connected. There's definitely a. It's it's funny that you gave that example because in my case, a lot of it was around the emotion of expression. Right, the, I was uncomfortable expressing where there would be emotion. Got and it. My wife is very comfortable in that re that regard. Right. Like you gave a different example for what your husband's comfortable with. Okay. Right. So I misunderstood the question. No, no, no. You misunderstood the question, saying that comfort he had was specifically in your area of discomfort. Right. Which was that kind of command of the room, which right. is very second nature. But also him. the freedom of expression exactly. too, and that's really. But freedom yeah. of, like. He like it's more like captivating kind of expression. Like I can captivate your attention and drive home a point. Right. My wife has very comfortable emotional expression. Right. 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 That's what was I saw that emotional expressing affection, compliments, anything that would create an emotional tension in this right. um, interaction. That's what like threw me off. So what you said about it was one hundred percent correct. What you said about the the spouse reflecting something that's specific to us. Like there's similarities, but there's also differences. So it was good that you put the question back on me because it made me think, yes, there's something specific to me that she's comfortable with that I'm not. But yeah, I guess because that's not there for her as intensely, there's never the sense that there's something bottled up. It can just kind of go. Where, right. I mean, maybe there is now for her. I don't know. But for me, there's certainly, um, there, there certainly is. You had mentioned earlier about um, leaning into struggle. Mm -hmm. So there's, um, it's no secret that you've been going through your family's been going through a lot of struggle over the last year, year and a half. Um, is there a way you've leaned in or not leaned in yet into that struggle? I'm relating specifically to the um, your husband's legal issues. We've grown stronger. We have. And I guess I'm... You're saying you as a couple, your family, you individually? Uh, me, us as a couple, our family. And is there a message you're giving yourself through all of this, something that you feel you could be doing better? Um it's taught me to be less judgmental, even though I had been working that on that for a while, um, to, you know, steer clear of, of gossip. And if I have questions, go directly to the person and speak to them about it, as opposed to, you know, getting information from other sources, um, do my due diligence, get educated. If I don't know enough, for me, it's been that, that's been a big lesson for me is to not jump to not conclusions. Have, not jump to conclusions. Is there a way we can uh, tie all parts of this conversation um, together? Maybe for someone who is looking to tap into the maybe not yet expressed part of themselves, someone who feels like they're looking for their purpose you know, through expression. Um, I could say for, in my own experience, there's been a certain amount of discomfort that is required to get to that place. And I think a lot of people are reluctant to move through. Um, I'd say like the lessons are number one, it's completely unique to you. There's no precedent. There's no way of knowing, you know, 100% what the path is without trying it. And that obviously will lead to, to discomfort. Um, and also to not assume it's this ties into our last conversation about knowing, thinking we know it's like, don't assume that, you know, um, anything really. And I use the example in one of my conversations about uh, Abraham. 
Abraham, do you think he could have imagined when he was sitting in his tent, like an airplane flying in the sky? I mean, it was unfathomable to him, yet we live under the same sky, we're in the same earth. So your potential is really limitless, but we, you know, we keep, our expectations will determine our reality, not the other, shouldn't be the other way around. So just kind of like, you don't know much, you don't know anything, just keep going and uh, you can get to places you never thought you could. And I guess I can end with an, a great uh, story I heard from my nephew, who's a musical prodigy. Mm-hmm. Um, how long does he have to be called a prodigy? He's been called a prodigy for like 10 years. He Actually, I should say former, because you have to be a, you have to <laughs> right. be a kid to be a prodigy. He was like the youngest <laughs> student ever admitted into the Schulich School of Music. I mean, he's now he's, you know. Like Mozart wasn't a prodigy anymore when he was, I don't know. When right, he, right, 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 right. I guess I'm just so accustomed to saying <laughs> right. that. He's like 21 and he's married. So he's, right. let's just say he was, he's a former child musical prodigy. Um, and he just shared something with me that his, professor, he's uh, in a master's program now for music, that his professor shared with him that I really liked. He said, our brains can only process at a rate of 250 milliseconds or a quarter of a second. So if you're playing the piano, um, you're playing one note every quarter second. That's what you can process. But a person like him can play 13 notes. Every quarter second? Every quarter second. Maybe it's every second. Hold oh, on. regardless, it's faster than... No, no, so yeah, no, it's four notes per second. So, yeah, it's four notes per second, one note per quarter second. So right. it's 13 notes per second oh, wow. is what he can do. And he said, I mean, you can't even speak it that quickly, let alone play it. But you're basically hacking your own brain. You're, you're creating these mechanisms that you never knew you had that make no sense based on brain science. And you're outsmarting yourself. I've seen that with, um, I think it was with a tennis serve, like yeah. the, the reflex that's needed to hit a ball coming that fast at you right. and not knowing which direction would go is just, right. it's faster than the brain can process. Yeah, exactly. So I, I thought that was great. It just kind of gives me hope and Right, meaning there's, know, it's possi- there's a possibility to unlock much more than even science can measure. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you for clarifying that. That's my, that's my job. I say things as I understand them, but usually it doesn't come out in like a... It's just perfect. Clear enough, yeah. So some food for thought. Right. In terms of, I thought, you know, there's... Our conversation went several different places. It started with this um, expression. So I'd love to tie it together. And I'm wondering if maybe um, we can try this on. Did... Had you not gone through this process of... um, confronting the fear of speaking, getting out there, expressing regularly, sharing your mental health journey, those different ways of just saying, I'm not going to be, you know, held back by my comforts. Would that have changed your reaction in a meaningful way that you can understand to the experiences of the last year and a half with your husband and the community? Would my reaction have been different had I not gone through all of this? Yeah, if you didn't have this expression, if you didn't, where we started the conversation, if you didn't go through that process of learning to speak publicly, pushing yourself in the podcast, and whichever ways that took, the the whichever ways that expression took form, mm. if you had not gone through that process, would you have been less prepared to deal with what your family had to deal with in yes. the last year and a half? One hundred percent, yes. It would have been. I mean, I can't say for sure, um, but 
judging by the way I was before I took this role on, I could say that I would have been far less equipped for sure. What do you think would have happened? I've struggled to even go there. Um, but I would say some form of numbing maybe. Right. But the likelihood that you'd be sitting, I mean, living in everyday life, comf somewhat comfortably with friends, family, positive positivity, hope. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm right. Just trying to understand. What you're, you're saying think. what's the likelihood that that would be the case had I not, had you not done this? it? Yeah. It's a tough question to answer. Definitely more likely, uh, sorry, less likely that I that would be equipped. You would be able to equip but, to handle this. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. No, so I, I've found that repeatedly that I've been put in situations, uh, life has put me in situations that I simply would not have been prepared for were it not for uh, the ways I've leaned in, certainly my mental health journey. Right. I can share a lot of this podcast just to tie it all together because that's what the initial motivation to speak to speak with you was about that was the expression that I I'm trying to figure it out for myself right this is I'm not interview I'm not interviewing um I, I'm I'm still trying to gain something for me in this process right that's the purpose of this uh, of Same this here, yeah. so I said oh maybe you can say something in a way that will land for me in terms of why this expression feels so necessary to me because it seems like you're going through that same process and that was the uh, the purpose of this, but what I, the way this podcast started, it didn't start as a podcast. It was what happened was, is as soon as COVID hit, it became so clear to me that so many people were overwhelmed in ways that I was not feeling overwhelmed. Like, like it just example. seemed mass confusion and people very close to me. And what I felt like had given me a lot of that um, confidence to be able to deal with whatever COVID was going to throw, because there was this massive unknown around every area of our life the physical health right the freedoms you know we forget that there were different periods in covid the first four weeks we were all scared as hell we didn't know right how many people were going to die right. and many of us knew people dying right and then afterwards we see this you know the uncertainty in the streets and the physical safety and then financially every single one of us said what's going to happen to our businesses every single one right and i felt a level of internal peace and calm as it was coming on and seeing a lot of people who weren't in that place, I said, what gave me the preparation for this? What was it that, why do I feel so different um, in terms of my reaction to the same life events as other people um, have? And I was even seeing it amongst business owners and people who did, you know, who had similar setup to me. And what I attributed to was a lot of the things are really around the addiction work and what it took to um, remove the dependency I had on my addiction. And that work forced me to like dig so deep. You know, in recovery, there's an expression, they say, let go and let God, like that complete surrender of everything we know, everything we understand to get to a trust that there is a better way. Because the dependency that's formed on an addiction is to a degree a proclamation that this has my answers. At the end of the day, when all else fails, I can go to porn and I'll feel a certain way. Or someone right. says, at the end of the right. day, when all else fails, I can go to alcohol and feel a certain way. And when someone goes into recovery, they're taking away that at the end of the day, when all else fails, I can go to whatever that answer is that's been removed. And that's right. scary as shit. Right. And going through that process forced me to tap into 
a faith, a trust in myself and God and the universe, and that, okay, I don't know, but there is one who does, and this will be okay. And that wasn't a thought. It wasn't a perspective. It was a lived experience. Right. So when COVID hit and there was a lot of confusion, I said, okay, I know I'm good. I know I'm good. Not that it was easy. It was extremely difficult, but there was within it an internal calm and an internal um, peace. So Because right. you were able to be with yourself and not dependent on something outside yourself to, to yep. feel content. Because that that's the fear right there are all of these things that we think bring us comfort right whether it is our work or our travel schedule or our family or our schools whatever like everything just got upended so wherever you had your comfort it was removed for sure whatever it was right whatever it was right. just whether it was hey i hang out with my friends and we go right. to a restaurant no everything is lost now you're just sitting there and we don't know where this is going right but to be able to find that place of internal peace that's beyond any of the noise that was a practice that enabled me to shed level of calm. And I said, hey, I have to share this with others. So the very first event we did, it wasn't a podcast, it was a webinar, and I called it Let Go and Let God, and just like, hey, let me talk and share about this experience. And I felt like those who went through recovery from addiction had a lot to share with everyday man. And then from there, one thing leads to another. We never know the way a path is going to um, evolve, open up, and and here we are today. Yeah. But um, it's interesting because Rabbi uh, Tversky talked a little bit about that, about the hot springs, you know, the story where he um, he had some chronic pain. Um, he's like a leading he was a leading figure mm -hmm. in, in addiction and recovery. And he so he had chronic pain and he was advised to go to these hot springs. And when he went inside the body of water, he was told to stay there for 25 minutes and five minutes in. He was feeling a lot of tension and nervousness and he realized he couldn't even be he couldn't be with himself. Right, it wasn't and, about the hot springs. It was about being alone. Right, exactly. But he, he, I guess there was nowhere. He was forced to be in there for his own, I guess, other kind of recovery. And that's when he realized that he needed something else, uh, not just a physical recovery. Right, maybe even it was else. related to each other, you know, the chronic pain and the mental anguish of feeling the sense of unease. So like in, with that work, like learning to be with yourself, that's why people had different reactions to, to COVID. Right. It, it explains a lot. Yeah. I think it, it really exposed a lot of what was inside for, for many of us. It, it brought out um, a lot of things. So I hope that our conversation can inspire um, others who are either not sure about this mental health journey or already on it, but can use a little bit more fuel in their tank to... Um, that it's a worthwhile pursuit because in my life it's been the number one most meaningful pursuit has been making sure that this is okay right which in turn makes sure that um the rest is working correctly independent of the fact that there's as mentioned something i'd like for i'd like to be a little bit better but that focus has been like i said the number one most fulfilling and it sounds to me like it's up there for you as well so hopefully us i think it's together. significantly important like i think it's so important especially someone like you who achieved business success. And I'm sure there's many aspiring entrepreneurs and business people who want to be like you and for you to share that message with them can just help guide them in their, in their values because we're a career driven world in society. And just to say, Hey, look, you can achieve all the success in the world, but you've got to be able to be with yourself. You've got to be able to be self-aware and do the work you know, that is huge. 
That's really huge. That's been my experience, and which is very much in line with a lot of what you spoke about, is that it's coming one way or another. We're all going to deal with our mental health challenges. Right. We can meet it and do it on our timetable, or it will meet us and will be done in its timetable. That's so true. Amen. So I think yeah. on, that, uh, on that note, thank you for yeah. uh, joining the In Search of More podcast. And as this thank you for the opportunity. Um, evolves, yeah. you don't have to be a stranger. We can hear how your search of more is, uh, <laughs> is, uh, is working out and some of the questions that um, you didn't have answers that you were 100% certain of today. Maybe we can see how they evolve yeah. over time. Yeah. Thank you, Ida. I appreciate thank you, you for joining me. me for this conversation. Thank you for having me.